Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Caligaris, the Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. Today, we are very excited to have on Francisco Brand, Head of Product and Growth Marketing at Uber Eats. Welcome, Francisco. Hi, everyone. Pleasure to be here. I have to tell you, Uber Eats is a brand I know very well, uh, <laughs> not just in the uh, in the pandemic, but it certainly did raise its profile in the house. But uh, can you start just give me a little bit of background on you and your role and kind of path to how you got where you are with Uber Eats today? Absolutely. Uh, I basically am uh, European. I was uh, born and raised in Portugal, but very early in my life, I probably I inherited the gene of the discovery discovery period. And I wanted to just go abroad and, 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 and live and experience other cultures. So I lived in Russia, Spain, uh, England, Germany. And for the last 12 years, I've been in the United States. Um, I started my career um, in, in marketing um, at an actual textile company um, back in the day, uh, helping them go to trade shows and fairs and helping them design a booth. Uh, I studied marketing in the university, and then I decided that this is something I am really passionate about, and I want to keep um, driving my growth in this field. And so um, I was lucky enough that I was able to um, be part of multiple different uh, industries, from um, pharmaceuticals to medical devices to AI technology uh, to currently Uber, uh, and even within Uber, I, I've been part of Uber for Business, Uber Health, and now Uber Eats. And so it's been uh, a wonderful uh, career so far, and I'm really grateful for the, all the opportunities. Great. We are so excited to have you on. Okay. So one of the things, having done this show for several years, that I think is really interesting is how different people define product marketing, right? People can have that same role, and it's defined very differently. So maybe if you could give us your definition of product marketing and also sort of uh, why you think it plays such a critical role in organizations? That is a great question. And I can attest to that, that in fact, product marketing has different definitions across different companies. Um, I know Apple, Siemens, Uber, they all define it differently, but the core of product marketing, in my opinion, is the same. And so my simple definition would be, product marketing is the art of taking the right product to the right audience at the right time. So that would be the simplest way of, of saying it. Of course, product marketing is a bit more complex than that um, in a sense that um, we should be uh, representing our customers. We should be the voice of customer. In a way, we should help um, an, an organization to uh, develop solutions, services, and innovations that truly meet customer needs and then help marketing organizations launch those solutions uh, in a way that raises awareness, drives conversion, and product usage. So we really kind of play a dual role of inbound and outbound marketing, inbound bringing in customer insights, outbound making sure customers are aware of the solutions we have that will address their pain points. Absolutely, and I think one of the, the fun pieces of the role too is that it's ever evolving, right? Getting right. the voice of the customer uh, is, is certainly not a one-time thing and obviously being the voice of the product's not. So it's an ongoing cycle. Uh, and as the more we bring in the customer, the more we affect the product. Uh, and the more natural those conversations can go back out. That's right. And fun fact, not a lot of people know this, but the very first definition of marketing in the United States 
was in the um, mid 1800s when Tiffany's uh, released their first mail catalog called the Tiffany's Blue Book. And it was pure product marketing. It was a catalog that featured the product with a value proposition, price, and uh, it was positioned based on the different audiences. Eventually Sears took that over and Sears became known for having their famous Sears catalogs. And it was again, pure product marketing. How do we feature products? How do we make sure that the audiences understand the value of the product and they're willing to pay for a price? I did not know that. And what's really interesting about that as well is you've got the same technique, let's say, being used very differently for two companies because they have very different products and particularly very different audiences, right? I mean, the blue book from Tiffany's, well, I, I, I imagine, right? It, it, at least if they did one today, would be so different than the Sears catalog, right? Because even where there was overlap in products, those audiences are very different. That's right. And that, that, that is exactly the point. Like the core product marketing doesn't change. Um, but you're absolutely right to say that the evolution of product marketing um, has accelerated in recent years. In fact, if you think back about the history of marketing uh, from the first catalog, uh, it took another 50 years until suddenly we started seeing radio ads. And then it took another 20 years until we started getting um, uh, outdoor advertisement. And then another 10 years, you got TV ads. And then finally, you got telephone, uh, telemarketing. And then you hit the late 90s and suddenly it explodes with the internet, social media and smartphones. You now have LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Snapchat, TikTok, you have blogs, you have um, account-based marketing, you have um, what we called uh, performance-based uh, marketing. So suddenly it became hyper-specialized uh, marketing instead of being a general marketing manager 20 years ago, that would be a title. Today, there's no such thing. Today you're like either a performance marker, a CRM uh, marker, you're a social media marker, you are either uh, a PR and media, marker, and then you have product marketing. And the product marketing, I think, plays a critical role in today's world because um, you're kind of the conductor of this orchestra, right? You have, like, if you think about an orchestra, you have the cello player, you have the violinist. They, if they all play at their own tune, you're gonna get a lot of noise and not a real true symphony. So the role of product marketing is how do we create a campaign with a consistent tone of voice, um, a consistent design, look and feel, and how do we leverage all of these specialized markers to tell that story well um, in a consistent way. And I think that's really how product marketing has evolved from pure product marketing to now becoming kind of the architect of a go-to-market plan. I like that uh, analogy of the orchestra, right? And, and you're, you know, and it's, I think it's particularly important because it's like there's all these new instruments, there's all these new tactics, and then each individual tactic is evolving so quickly, right? Just staying an expert in that that specific field, and product marketing needs to stay as an expert in the the product and the audience, uh, and in a way that they can translate those so that all of those different tactics excel. Absolutely. So let's let's talk a little bit about that role then. Our our conductors. What makes in your mind the very best product marketing folks? Yeah, I I actually um. I read an article back in, I believe it was like late 90s. I think it was written by um, Ben Horowitz from the famous uh, VC capital firm, uh, Andreessen Horowitz. And he wrote uh, a piece about what makes a good PM and a bad PM, like a product manager and a bad product manager. And that inspired me to actually write a manifesto for my team, uh, which is 
what I call the 10 commandments of great product marketers. Um, and so there are really 10 things in my mind and I'll be very brief on each one of them. Like number one, great PMMs. Um, and so I'm referring PMMs as product marketers. Um, they embrace data. So they understand how to leverage research and market data to uncover user insights. They truly embrace this data to help drive um, product roadmap decisions and, and, and drive effective marketing campaigns. Bad PMMs, they think this is the responsibility of R&D, product management, or UXR, and they often assume Google stats is enough. The second element is they are great design thinkers. Great PMMs understand that great products require great marketing-driven insights. And they understand that marketing starts with product discovery, experimentation, piloting, and then finally rolling it out. Bad PMMs think their role begins only when the product is ready to launch. The third element is they are product experts. Like great PMMs really get deep into the product. They wanna be able to demo the product. They wanna be able to um, understand it at a, to a point that they become dangerous enough that they can actually then start to challenge even product managers. Bad PMMs don't think they need to know how to demo a product, that's not their responsibility. Four, they own and are accountable for go-to-market. That means they drive the go-to-market process, the plan and execution, and they understand, they really understand all the different parts of marketing and sales, and they can actually coordinate all these different elements. Uh, so they really are the architects of it. The bad PMM basically thinks project, project managers should manage the go-to-market process. Um, they are only there to help drive value proposition and narratives. Number five, and this is one of my favorites, they are great storytellers. That's really what makes a great PMM, is the ability to take something that could be very complex um, and then be able to distill that information into a memorable, reproducible, and inspiring product story. Um, bad PMMs, they revert, they simply use like technical product explanations and, and they, a lot of the times they, it feels like manuals and not really great storytelling. Uh, number six, they're great brief writers. They know that a great brief helps other teams, other teams in marketing to drive inspirational work. Um, so they know how to write a, a great brief that will ultimately inspire uh, an agency or will inspire internal teams to rally behind their, their plan and, and do their best work. Uh, bad PMMs, they often think that briefing, a brief is actually a strategy plan with all the tactics that you want to do, um, and often it misses the mark. Number seven, they measure success. Great PMMs, they know that measurement is key to demonstrate business impact. Uh, and bad PMMs think measurement is not their responsibility. They often come up with excuses that, oh, not everything can be measured. Uh, number eight, they're visionaries. PMMs, great PMMs craft the vision for the success of the product. And they do not build a, a go-to-market plan on the launch moment, but instead a series of campaign building blocks that drive long-term product growth. Bad PMMs, they think about the short-term. Like we have a launch date, we're gonna launch the product. And then they, after the product is launched, they move on to the next one without really sort of following through on the success of the product. Number nine, they have grit. PMMs really are able to work with senior executives on Monday and on Tuesday, check their ego and take on the dirty entry-level work that normally is reserved for entry-level people, but they do it because they wanna get things done. Um, they're driven by, uh, by action. While bad PMMs often don't take initiative, they wait to be told what to do and um, they often delegate a lot of the work um, to entry-level people. Finally, the last one um, is they are player coaches. 
great BMMs are mentors, always looking to share best practice, help others grow. Um, and the best praise that a PMM can get is a compliment on the success of a campaign, not a success of himself. While bad PMMs often, you know, they forget sometimes when to give credit to others and they measure themselves based on, you know, executive feedback as opposed to um, the success of, of a cross collaboration work. So those are the 10 commandments, I would say, what, what really drives uh, great PMMs. Those are great. Um, can we dig into a few of those? Of course. All right. Uh, I'm going to try to keep to a few. But I, so one of the ones that you talked about is a brief. Um, and what, before we dig into here, I think what you've described there in those sort of 10 commandments of great PMM is, is spot on. And it's very much a reflection of what we've seen as sort of the shift in product marketing over uh, over the last 10 years, but particularly accelerated maybe in the last five to really being a more strategic player coming in earlier in the process. So I love seeing that live with your team. I've been excited to see it alive with some of the other companies we've worked with like IBM. And it's really neat to see the elevation of a role that has so much impact when it's done well. Mm -hmm. But uh, so you talked about a little bit about the creative brief uh, or the brief uh, that you guys use. Talk to me about what do you think are the key elements of that brief uh, that that are so necessary to giving the, the the information needed, but also that do inspire, as you said. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I could I could basically um, call out the three pillars of a great brief, and then of course there's a lot more that goes into the specifics, but there are three great pillars, uh, like three key pillars of a great brief, and and those are number one, start with a why. Like, why are we even um, thinking about a plan, thinking about a launch, thinking about a campaign? Um, and, and, and that is really where you bring in insights. Like, a brief should always be grounded on a deep understanding of your target audience. And that's really the why. The why is, why is there a problem today uh, that we think we can address? Um, why is this important to our target audience? Um, what insights do we have based on research, based on market data, based on our user base that truly validate the why for this brief? The why is also the most inspiring part. It's really, if you, if you, if you nail the why, you actually already, from the get-go, you're getting everyone else who's reading the brief to get excited uh, about the plan and, and learning more about the next section of your brief, which is the how. So now that you explain, we have a problem, our customers are, for example, um, not satisfied with the current service. This is what we learn about it. This is the areas based on the customer journey that we built, the gaps that currently exist that we can address. The how is, how are we addressing them? So what are we doing to addressing these problems? Um, are we launching a new product? Are we launching a new service? Um, are we launching a new campaign just to raise awareness? Um, it's really basically where you articulate the solution to the problem highlighted in the first section. Um, then the, the third section is the what, really. Um, what are the benefits that your solution will provide to your customers? Um, what is the timeline for launching this product? Uh, what are the key metrics that you're going to measure the success of your particular approach, solution, product, campaign? Um, this is where you basically summarize in terms of what is the ask that we're making to these teams. So at a high level, and I know this seems very high level and abstract, any good brief really is um, based on these three pillars. 
the why, the how, and the what. Now, of course, if you deep dive into the actual brief template, there's a lot of different sections, uh, specifically around the what. Like I said, the what will incorporate your timeline, will incorporate the specific value proposition. Uh, like what is the value proposition? What is your timeline? What is the channel strategy? Um, what is the ask you're making to the creative team to design your campaign and, 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 and brand tone of voice? Um, what is the budget that you are willing to spend for this? Um, and then finally, um, what are the KPIs you're gonna be using? So even though I stayed a little bit at a high level, why, how, and what, the reality is there's a lot of subsections underneath, but these are the three pillars that I believe would really help you build a robust um, brief. Great. One of the other ones, I think it was uh, number four, was about go to marketing, right? Go to market planning and really owning the process for both planning and execution. Mm -hmm. One area that I see organizations struggle with is sort of the depth of understanding of the various tactics they expect from product marketing, right? How deep uh, is the expertise in any one of those? How deep should their digital marketing or social aspects or, or whatever it be uh, versus how they partner with other marketing communication resources that do it. So if you can just expand a little bit on how you see that connection point between kind of defining the process, but being able to balance that with the expertise that lives and some of the specialists, I would love to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what I would say, it, it's really critical that product marketers in today's 21st century marketing organization uh, needs to, to do is get familiar with all the different channels at their disposal. There are really three buckets of channels. You have um, own channels. These are the channels that your business or corp corporation or, or startup own that you don't pay to actually use. For example, your social media handles, your organic social media, your um, website, um, your email uh, channel, Channels. Um, your, if you have an app, your in-app messaging, um, text messaging, and if you have a blog, your blog channel. So own channels, uh, the PMM needs to understand all of them and when to apply each one of them. They don't need to be experts in how to use them. Uh, in today's 21st century marketing organizations, you'll have an expert that actually owns, for example, the CRM strategy. Um, but you need to know the value that each channel brings. Um, the second bucket is uh, what we called uh, earned channels. Earned channels are channels that you earn through um, briefing the press, uh, doing a press release. Um, you can go and give keynote talks at, and be invited to, to talk shows or to um, you know, conferences, and, and you basically evangelize the brand. Um, these are channels that you, you've earned by word of mouth. And then the third one is where you spend most of your money. I would say probably 90% of your budget, which is paid channels. This is where you do social media advertisement, you do um, search advertisement, you do influencer marketing, you do TV ads, radio ads, out of home advertisement. Uh, it's basically the, the, the combination of everything where you have to spend a dollar to get a word out. Now, again, you don't have to be an expert in any of these channels, but you need to be the voice of customer basically knowing which channels will be effective for the target audience you're targeting. I'm going to give you an example. Um, when I first joined Uber, we were targeting business travelers and we're about to launch a campaign to target business travelers. And 
what I've learned through the research that I've done with, with our, our, our teams is that there are four types of business travelers. The jet setters, uh, these are sea level people that travel um, you know, frequently uh, with first class flights and so on. You have the road warriors, these are consultants or salespeople that are constantly on the road. You have the locals that only travel within the city like lawyers and accountants. And then you have the new uh, newbies, the entry uh, level people that just joined the workforce. And what we found is that, for example, jet setters, they don't follow social media from our company. Um, they tend to get their information when they travel, either airport ads or in-flight magazines. While road warriors, they follow our channels, mostly to see if we can give them uh, points or credits. And they also follow influencers that talk about points. Um, as an example, so knowing this, we knew that if we're building a solution that it's a premium solution and we're targeting jet setters, we know the exact channels that we want to build a campaign around. And then if we're targeting World Warriors um, with a loyalty program that we're creating, we know exactly the channels that we want to target them with. For example, we can use the points guy to actually build a, an affiliate marketing campaign with them. And I think this is the role of PMN. It's not exactly knowing the technical specification on how to execute on the channel, but knowing which channel will be effective to your audience so they can build the plan and collaborate with all these different channel managers and execute on it. That was a great explanation. Uh, one more area I want to double dip on because I know my audience and I've got a lot of product managers that also listen to this. And I'm, I'm pretty sure in some of the earlier areas, there was a few of them have the like hair standing up on the back of their neck thinking, wait, I own that piece, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about the handoffs that you have either at Uber or just like in your career that you see where there are really successful partnerships between product management and product marketing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I normally tend to say when I, when I work with, with product managers and, and, um, and product ops, so this is a new term that a lot of tech companies use, product ops, product operations, um, I, I tend to see it as almost like the three of us, the, the product marketer, the product manager, and the product ops, we're kind of like the, the board of a startup where the CEO of the product is the product manager. Um, the product ops person is the COO of the product and we are the CMO of the product. Um, and, and basically we all have the same goal, which is how do we make sure that the product is successful, that we drive a lot of product adoption, growth and usage. And there will always be fine lines where, for example, product management will say, um, I need to work with UXR in testing a few concepts and validating if I need to use a, a different feature in our current product. And that's totally fine. Um, and sometimes we will be talking to customers, we'll uncover needs that um, could be fulfilled with a different feature. And so we bring those in. And so I think the key success metric to avoiding territorial uh, conversations is just have an open collaborative environment where everyone adds to the table. So if I'm building a marketing campaign and marketing message and I'm creating the brief, I'm going to include the product manager of that particular product in the brief review, even though, you know, it doesn't have to because it's, it's our brief, marketing owns it and marketing is doing the campaign, but I want him to feel part of it and contribute because I want him to feel like he is the CEO of the product and he should contribute to it knowing that we are the experts in marketing, but he has something to say. Because in turn, when he's trying to think about his roadmap, he's gonna include us as well, because he knows we are the voice of customer and we have something to add to his roadmap. And so it, it's all about 
integrating everyone in, in your, and of course you don't want to delay. So when I build a brief, I include people as reviewers, but I don't necessarily need them to sign off on the brief because of the, otherwise, if you constantly wait for people, you just delay the whole process. So less is more in terms of getting things done, but make sure that they feel like they're included, um, even in things like just naming the product. A lot of the times product managers complain that, you know, they build the product, they have an internal project name for the product. And certainly marketing comes up with a different name when they launch it and they had no saying in it. I think it's a mistake um, because imagine you built a product from the ground up and you are attached to that product, it's your baby. And certainly someone else decides what you're gonna call your baby. That wouldn't be fun. Um, and so what I always say is like include them throughout the whole process of your, your launch plan, your, your, your research, and in turn, you'll see that they will retribute, like they will basically return the, the favor um, unless they're bad product managers. That's great, right? You, you demonstrate the collaboration and you start to, I mean, I think, but it's always trust too, right? So when they see value that you bring, it's easy for them to include uh, and vice versa, right? When you see the value that they can bring uh, into the product marketing processes too, then it, it's easy to see why that those, those loops are great. Um, okay. So we talk about those are the 10 things you should do well. And it talks a little bit about the about the things that bad PMs do. When you think or bad PMs uh, do, you think about mistakes that companies make about product marketing. What do you see? Yeah. And so I kind of touch what, what I think bad PMs do normally. But I think what I've seen is a lot of mistakes that normally companies make. Um, and product marketing is part of that, of course. The two main mistakes that I see often, and you know, I, I in the beginning of my career, I was also guilty of that. Uh, the number one is uh, starting with a what. Like I said before, the why is the foundation for everything you do. When companies start with a what, um, what normally will happen is that your message won't stick. It won't stick because there's no close relationship between product and, and the, the, the audience. It just feels like a very technical explanation of what you're trying to do. So it's almost like product feature centric messaging or product feature centric campaign, um, as opposed to the, the, the true benefit of what the product can do for you. And so this type of narrative tends to be very mechanical, spec oriented, does not really emotionally connect with your audience. So um, studies actually found that, um, and, and this is, is, has been proven for, for a while now, that uh, when people are making purchasing decisions, even in B2B, a lot of the times, most of the times, they lead with emotions rather than logic. And I know that there tends to be this um, assumption that B2B is more logic and consumers are, are more emotional. Even in B2B, the person making a decision is a human being. And a lot of the times, it's an irrational decision that they're making. Um, so try to always lead with technical specifications and try to always lead with, with logical arguments is not the right approach. You, in B2B, you need to do a blend of both. In B2C, you tend to drive a lot more with emotional uh, messaging. So that's why um, you know, I would always recommend um, think about your why, build your campaign, product, and messaging around the why. Um, there was a report I read somewhere that um, uh, companies that actually start with the why across their their product portfolio, messaging, and brand um, often are rewarded with higher customer loyalty and can generate five times more revenue than the direct competitors. So five times more revenue. That's because they're building a connection that it, for these customers, it's very hard to break. 
Apple does this really well. Apple is all about emotional connection. Yeah, and, and other companies that try to beat Apple, they try to go on spec and they often lose. Um, the other thing that I think a lot of companies make a mistake is the idea that one size fits all. And I see this over and over again, when product marketers assume that everyone will understand their message. And even if they have indeed started with a why, um, it so happens that your message doesn't always resonate with every single audience. Um, reason number one is that they assume the market is homogeneous. And that assumption is really dangerous. So they assume that everyone behaves and feels the same way. Uh, and therefore their message, even if it starts with a why and it's based on insights, they assume it's gonna be impactful to everyone. Um, so that's a mistake because never assume everyone is your audience. Um, you know, you will have a clear audience if you do your research uh, and you really truly drive, drive insights. Um, you can understand that, you know, your total addressable market uh, maybe quantified by strategy, but in reality, your product does not address the whole uh, market. So even if your whole market is $2 billion, um, that doesn't mean your specific product, your specific narrative is going to address the whole $2 billion market. So it's really important um, to ground um, your, your strategy on, on a clear segment, on a, a clear persona, and, and that way it will be more effective. One of the things that we've talked about uh, and you've brought up a couple of times, right, is the importance of product marketing in the development of sort of the value prop, that, that key product messaging. Yeah. Um, let's, can we, let's go a little bit deeper on that and talk about what makes great messaging. Yeah, I love this one. Um, I am very passionate about messaging. Um, I think there are two, I wouldn't call it secret, but I would say two uh, key elements um, or ingredients, let's call it ingredients uh, for great storytelling. Um, number one, great messaging isn't about good storytelling. It's about telling a true story well. And that's really key. That means it's not about creating a fancy story um, that sounds great. It's about uncovering the truth, relentlessly uncovering the truth, and then telling that truth really well. That's the number one thing. Uh, it's like, that's what makes great storytelling. Uh, number two, you need a story arc. Um, you can't just uh, basically put together a story that doesn't follow a consistent flow. Um, you need to have a nice story arc. And I said this um, to, to, to many people in the past. We often forget as marketers that we all grew up with stories. I mean, I'm assuming, and I, obviously I'm generalizing here, not all of them grew up with stories, but the majority of people as kids, we hear stories. We hear our parents tell us stories. We read books. Um, and... I would say 95% of these stories always follow a same story arc. And that story arc is there's a crucible, there's relatability, there's an, the antagonist and protagonist and the premise, AKA moral of the story. So the crucible is really the situation. It's really setting the, the, the situation to help you imagine in your mind um, the particular context of where that story is taking place. Relatability is when you bring that story to my level and it's not too abstract. The antagonist is basically the villain of the story. In other words, the problem, the challenge that you're facing. The protagonist is the hero of your story. In other words, it's your product, your company, your brand. And then the premise or moral of the story is actually your elevator pitch. Like in summary, this is what we do. So here's an example um, that I've done at Siemens when I was at Siemens prior to Uber. We were introducing 
uh, a device that could image really large patients, like uh, patients that had, um, you know, be classified, were classified as obese with a BMI above 35. Um, these patients are really hard to image. So what is the crucible? Obesity is increasing uh, and two thirds of the US population are classified as obese with one third being classified as morbidly obese. So that's your crucible, that's the context. However, I'm selling an ultrasound device and I'm an ultrasound doctor, physician. It still doesn't connect to me because yes, I know about obesity, I know it's a problem. Why should I care? That's the relatability part of the story arc. Well, across all the different imaging devices, ultrasound um, has the highest number of false positives uh, when imaging obese people because it cannot penetrate deep enough uh, through all the fatty tissue to give you a clear picture. So now I'm listening because now as the ultrasound doctor, yes, it's true. Yes, obesity is a problem and I 100% I, I, I relate to that because we can never, never image an obese patient with ultrasound. Then you introduce the antagonist. Traditional ultrasound imaging is limited in the amount of energy it can transmit that allows you to penetrate deep enough and get a clear picture of what's going on in the liver or what's going on in uh, the kidneys, for example. The antagonist here is the villain. The villain is all the other systems that exist in the market. Now you introduce your hero, your protagonist, which is your system. We built a system um, that helps you to penetrate up to 40 centimeters. Now you can get a clear picture, no matter the size of the patient. So what's the premise? Obesity is an epidemic. Um, extraordinary people require extraordinary imaging. Current technology does not allow for extraordinary imaging. We built a solution that gives you extraordinary imaging so you can image every extraordinary patient. So that's really summarizing all of it. If you apply this story arc, it really works. And I've done this over and over again. Um, it, it is not always intuitive because to think about a villain, an antagonist or a protagonist, it just feels abstract because you always think about this particular uh, evil vampire or, or dragon that um, kidnapped the princess, right? But in reality, if you're trying to, to solve for a problem, that problem is the villain. That's why you're telling the story, because you're, you're telling the story that exists um, in whatever customer segment you're, you're targeting, um, and you're solving it um, with a hero, which is your product, your brand, your company. Slaying dragons. That's what we do. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> One of the things you said, uh, which really uh, resonated, was you know, that it's, it's not just telling a story, it's telling a true story. And I think when it's done well, it's you're telling a, your true story of your brand. And it shouldn't sound like it could be anyone else's brand. Mm -hmm. um, which, and so when you, when you see it and you see it done well, it kind of, it really pops out to you. And obviously though, uh, we all have, I always call it the, uh, I say, oh, that, that story is 100% buzzword compliant, right? <laughs> it gets <laughs> all of the catchphrases. Uh, we've all seen that, right? When we're not building a story and we're, we're throwing features or other words, if you could banish one phrase or word from product messaging for all of eternity, play it like a dragon, what would it be and why? If I could banish one word from product messaging, that word would be product. Hmm. Because great product narratives are never about the product. They're always about the audience. It's about how the product makes them feel, makes them act, react, how their lives will be so much better because now they have this product service or solution. Bad product narratives tend to focus on the product, these features, superior technology. Uh, you know, we have 
you know, 5,000 uh, pixel density, we have 5K resolution, so what? Um, you know, it's superior tech means nothing to me if you're not solving for, for something uh, that, I need, that I need or care. So here's a hint, you know your product isn't great if you need to explain it in your message, how great your product is. So in other words, the product, um, you know, is a means or is the means for a desired outcome or state of mind for your customer. If you can't communicate that in your narrative, then your product will not capture your audience's attention. The biggest mistake marketers really make is, uh, is basically thinking that people will want to buy or, or, or uh, use your product because it's new. And that's absolutely wrong. People only want to own new or, or buy new services um, because of the feeling the state of mind, the experience, the perceived status of owning those things, right? It's, it's not always about the feeling or it is about the feeling because sometimes just having a Ferrari somehow gives you a perceived status and that makes you feel good in whatever community you live in. Um, so it, it, great product marketers don't tell a story about the shiny new object and how innovative or disruptive it is. No, they let their customers tell that story. Great product marketers tell a story about how your life will be better different or unique because of this object. And this is why you always need to ground your messaging in a deep understanding of your target audience, like what they really want, how they behave, what their needs, what are their pain points, their lifestyle. And when you know this, that's when you can start to build a narrative, a message that truly relates to their lifestyle and is less about the product, it's more about them. Vanishing product, I like it. All right. Um... You know, 2020 was a, a different year for all of us. Uh, it certainly changed a lot of different things. And I, I think it, it did uh, evolve product marketing and it evolved messaging a little bit. If you were to take a look at, at where we are now after, after in the midst of this pandemic, after all the changes, what are your predictions? What do you think 2021 is going to bring? Although we all know <laughs> after the last year, predictions can be a little dangerous. But tell me from a product marketing perspective, uh, what are your predictions for 2021? Yeah, um, I think product marketing will become even more influential within an organization, S certainly within marketing, but within an organization. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in, in our conversation, uh, you know, for the longest time, um, the evolution of marketing has been slow and steady. But over the last 20 years, marketing has evolved more than the first 200 years combined. And, and so... Product marketing plays a key role in, in ensuring that with all these new technologies, these new channels, these new uh, different audiences, because if you think about it, this is really something that I, I learned the other day. It took uh, 50, 50 or 60 years. I don't remember quite the number now, but it, it took, let's say, 50 years for airlines to get to 50 passenger, 50 million passengers. It took um, another 50 years, I think, uh, for um, automotive companies to get 50 million um, active drivers. And it took Uber six years to get to 50 million uh, active users. Wow. And that's because technology today allows us to reach people a lot quicker and always be on. You know, you're getting notifications. I'm speaking to you and I'm getting notifications left and right. And a lot of them are marketing. And so how do you balance all of this? How do you, in a hyper-specialized environment um, where you, customers are being inundated with so much, how do you help to polish a launch plan, a go-to-market plan, 
um, so that it's effective. It's not just noise, and it actually um, helps organizations to really attract and reach more people. That's the role of product marketing. So I become, I, I am certain that product marketing will become more influential. And now that we are, 2020 really changed a lot for us, and we don't quite know that yet, but I, I'm certain that we will be thinking at different segments and different markets in different ways. Like for example, virtual meetings, which was a thing that most people did once in a while and didn't even have the camera on, now is the must and you just do it. Same thing with delivery, right? Um, today, even when, when the pandemic is over, sure, you wanna go back and sit down at restaurants because it's great, the experience is fantastic. But how many times will you do that? If you're pressed for time, you just wanna have the food delivered to your home. And prior to 2020, you probably didn't even think how reliable a platform like Uber Eats could be. But now you know it is reliable and you probably want to keep doing it even post pandemic. So what I'm trying to say is uh, behaviors and, and, and preferences have changed and we don't know how much they have changed and what kind of behaviors we should be watching out for, for new verticals and new opportunities. So this is where product marketing comes in. We will talk to the audiences, we'll do research, we will uncover insights that can help us understand like the market is reopening what is the best way to, to help companies reopen the market? What is the best way, what's the best narrative to, to put out there? Um, did we see that you know, consumers or businesses have shipped some of their behaviors and is there an opportunity for us to build new solutions? This is where, where product marketing can shine. And, and I believe as we enter 2021, still in the midst of a pandemic, uh, where new normals are still being determined, um, Product marketing is going to help organizations really measure customer sensitivity, willingness to pay, size new segments, optimize costs, and, and truly think of uh, a new way to position your brand in this post-pandemic world. All right, Francisco, we talked a lot of different things today. If you were going to have our listeners do two things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, what would it be? <laughs> I would say um, don't make customer obsession a buzzword. Truly, truly live it. And that means really always putting your customer hat on. You know, it's very easy for us to become very internally centric. Uh, and so always think about what would the customer do or react. And if you don't know that, learn it. Go and find out. There's multiple ways you can do it. If you have a large research team, great. You can use UXR, you can use marketing research, you can use um, you know, data science. If you don't have that, if you have a sales team, use your sales team to shadow them and talk to customers. If you don't have a sales team, no problem. You know, Use SurveyMonkey, uh, it's really cheap and you can actually reach a bunch of people very quickly and just get some signals. So that's the number one thing I would say, um, You know, live up to, being the voice of customer. Don't just make it a buzzword. And number two, this is something I learned when I was really young in my career. I read a book called 212 Degrees. Um, and it's a really simple concept. Water is really hot at 11, 211 degrees. With one extra degree, 212, water vaporizes. With vapor, you can power a locomotive. With a locomotive, you can move people and, and goods. So the, the point here is it, all it took was one extra degree. And so the concept is really simple, which is in everything you do as product marketers, always look at how can you add the extra degree of value to all the functions you partner with, whether it's product management, whether it's sales, 
marketing, you know, you can do the bare minimum, which is do what you're supposed to, but great PMMs stand out over time because every single time they add that extra degree of effort and they have built a reputation, a credible reputation over time. And that's why they get to expand their responsibilities, get promoted, or simply even get hired by or headhunted by other companies. So those will be the two things. Live up to the voice of customer and always look out for how you can contribute to the extra degree of effort. All right, Francisco, this was a genuine pleasure today. I really appreciate having you on. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. 